Hi everybody and welcome once again to the wonderful world of Pottywood, the podcast where we talk about movies with the people who make movies. I am one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me as always is... Uh, I'm Andrew Roger Carson. Hello, I could have led into that with an amazing spiel or comment or anything, but I'm still in awe that Chippendale Rescue Rangers was a lot better than I expected it to be. I absolutely love this movie. Oh my god, released on Disney Plus yesterday, or when you hear this show, uh, probably about a week ago. Yeah. Um, well, it's the new Roger Rabbit for our generation, and the humour is incredible, but, you know, it's... I remember, I think there was one section of um, Pottywood After Dark when we were talking... <laughs> remember that? Pottywood After yes. Dark. Well, uh, I think I mentioned that, oh my God, they're doing a Chippendale Rescue Rangers movie and how much is that going to suck? And I could not have been more wrong. So props up to After Dark, or also as it's known, Before Sunrise. And let's have a chat about our What's in the Box from last week, Steve. Are you done? I am. You're I'm taking done. a breath. <gasps> okay. <gasps> <gasps> Pass the Chardonnay, dear. Yes. Oh, yes. You're on the wine today, aren't you? Yes. I am. I am. Yes. I'm going to. I'm going to save the wine until after we finish recording. Um. But yes. Uh. Richard Linklater before sunrise, 1995, the first in his. Um. Would you Would you say Sun trilogy, the before trilogy? I don't know. What, what would you call it? Um. Well, it's. I guess it's the before trilogy, right? Yeah. Yeah, let's call it the Before Trilogy, um, yeah. starring uh, Uma Thurman's baby daddy, Ethan Hawke, and uh, Julie Delpy as Jesse and Celine, a uh, young American man and a young uh, Parisian girl who meet on the train going to Vienna, where Jesse is about to fly out uh, after visiting Europe back to the US, and Celine is just basically just passing through on the way home to Paris. The two of them strike up a conversation on the train, and just as they get to Vienna, Jesse decides in a grand romantic gesture to ask Celine to get off the train with him and then spend the rest of the day and the evening through until the morning walking around the city as he doesn't want to get a hotel room, and as he's flying out in the morning, you know, it'd just be a chance to spend some time with someone who just met romantic feelings abound and the story it follows the two of them as they go through the city now you mentioned the other week the scene is how i liked once i'm probably gonna like this yep. um i have mixed feelings about this one. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, indeed yes firstly let's get the good out of the way the good is there's some really nice mostly naturalistic performances are going on uh, the dialogue is properly fluid and the way that it's performed, it feels very naturalistic at times, even though it does also come across as very heavily scripted. But we'll get onto that in just a short while. There's some really, really nice moments between the two leads as this romance blossoms. Um, particularly, there's one scene which takes place in the listening booth of a record store yes. um, where they just keep giving each other very, very furtive glances and kind of looking away as the other one looks at them. And, and you know, you can obviously tell that there's this burgeoning kind of fire that's kind of building up between the two of them, which ultimately gets reconciled. Uh, uh, I think it's either the next scene or the scene after uh, in the Ferris wheel. And uh, then that kind of stays with them 
throughout the rest of the movie. Uh, it shows off Vienna in this wonderful light, and it really does look like an absolutely gorgeous city. Um, funnily enough, though, considering that this is supposed to take place overnight, there seems to be more stuff going on in Vienna than it would be in the middle of New York. For some reason, there's like <laughs> there's like bands and there's uh, bars are open all night and there's there's ferries where you can sit and have a coffee at like two o'clock in the morning and and it just seems to be so much going on that you're thinking, yes. wait, why why aren't we all going out to Vienna? You know, never mind Amsterdam. Yeah, it is a very postcard movie in that it respect. Is. Yeah. It is. There's a lot of it which does come across some it sometimes as very much like a tourist film. You know, come to Vienna and you can see all this kind of stuff. Um, and it, it looks very nice. I think the lighting at times is a bit flat, though. There's not really much in the way of, uh, of, of nice plays of light. Everything just seems to be kind of very, very kind of just a bit flat and a bit plain, which I guess he's keeping with the, 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 the low budget feel of the film but i would have liked to have seen a little bit more play around with that um in terms of it's not all good though because i do have a few issues with it firstly it's got that kind of mid 90s urge to just have verbal diarrhea and i think that was something that was kind of kicked off in with gusto when Tarantino came out and everything was all about these long kind of rambling monologues or duologues between people where they talk about the life, the universe and everything. And pretty much every single scene in this movie is discussing some kind of element about uh, love and romance and relationships, which works for a lot of the time. But there are some times where you just think, yeah, come on. This is like the fifth scene that we've had in a row of you two going into a bar and discussing you know where you think relationships should go in the future i think we've already covered this and the fact that the film actually has a one hour and 40 minute runtime it does feel a lot of the times like it's dragging on with this sometimes rather pretentious take on where we should be in terms of our relationships with other people and it 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 does feel like it needed an editor to just kind of sift through it all. And it, if you do compare it to once, and it, it's a little unfair because the two are very very different movies. But if you compare it to once, you with once you have this this hook, this kind of central hook, which is the music, and then the romance is kind of built around the shared love of the music. In this, it seems like the hook is the conversations between the two, which does work, but ultimately that is all there seems to be. And you're kind of there thinking, no, could could we not just have a little more? I know this isn't like an, an adventure film. It's not a Michael Bay movie. You're not going to have car chases and explosions, but at the same time, there does get to a point where you just get tired of just them having a duologue for the 18th time. And you just want something else to come in and break it up. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, I'll give you that. I mean, it is, uh, I guess you can say it's an autobiographical kind of account of Richard Linklater and uh, Kim Kreisen. And uh, separately, they both had similar stories, such as this, where they had this encounter with 
you know, a person on public transport and then ended up spending, you know, 24 hours in a location with them, which is where the stories kind of come along. And most of the on-screen dialogue was uh, the work of Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, uh, uncredited. Of course, there was a big story about that at the time, uh, which they got credited on the sequels to. Uh, I mean, Richard Linklater, um, when you kind of say that this is part of the trilogy, it's actually not a trilogy. There are four parts to this. Really? Because Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy reprise their roles in Richard Linklater's Waking Life, his kind of cell-shaded uh, animated movie. There is one segment of that where they are together playing those two characters. So realistically, they have appeared in another movie as well. So it's kind of... There's four tales to find. Um, Richard Linklater, people either love him or don't love him. Right? His movies are very always have a kind of independent feel. Mm. You know, stuff like Boyhood, which he shot over the case of what was it, twelve years, something 15, like that, something yeah. like that. And then you've got obviously uh, A Scanner Darkly, which is love it or hate it for some people. And then you've got the the before trilogy which, you know, is, is set over, you know, the course of this couple's relationship moving on. And you'll obviously see the other two sections of it, which is uh, before sunset and before, before midnight. midnight. Mm. And I'm sure we're not finished seeing uh, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy's characters mm. yet. I know that in another possibly five years, we may see another one. Who knows? Yeah, and, well, and before like menopause. To. Before yes. Yeah. But um before brunch. That's that's the next one. Yeah. I mean for for me, I like um there's some very nice little things in there. It was so nice to see the Ferris wheel make an appearance. Mm. So if you've if you know of the third man or even if you know of the Exactly that one. Oh, for you 80s kids, uh, it was in The Living Daylights with Timothy Dalton and Olivia Diablo on that Ferris wheel also. So that makes a nice appearance in the movie. Yeah. Um, And I really enjoy Julie Delpy um, a lot more than Gwyneth Paltrow and Jennifer Aniston, who were also up for this role. I did as well. I've got nothing really against the performances. I just thought that everything needed to just be trimmed down. You yeah. know, just just stop being so self indulgent with it all. Can like no, I got where you were going like about twenty minutes ago. There there are scenes where there's like a fortune teller, and then they go to a bar, and then they're having discussions there, and then they go to another bar, and then they're walking down the street having a discussion, and then they're walking into another bar and having a discussion, and it just gets to a point where you just think, right, we get it. We know that we're heading to the point where you two have to separate. And you're obviously going to be having ruminations about that as well. But so can we kind of skip over some of this? Because we don't need to know how you were just how you went to a, a cemetery and it made you think about the people who were buried there. Okay, we get it. That's a rumination on life. And it's showing about how the differences between you and he's life loving and you're scared to death all the time. But yeah, we got that back on the train within the first 10 minutes. So can yeah. we kind of leave that to one side? That that that's that was my issue with it all. Did your missus enjoy it? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, I guess. Do you feel it deserves to be in the box, 
Or are you on the 50-50? This is a bit overrated. Uh, I, I think I'm on the 50-50. I didn't hate it. I mean, we've pulled some stuff out, which which I have actually just hated. But um, no, I didn't hate it. I just, I don't, I just didn't like it. You know? And at some point, you've got to go through these people again. I know. But hopefully it'll take a, a more a more uh, distinct turn in the future. But enough of the future. Let's talk about the past. Let's get some anniversaries on the go. We watch them again all of the time. Oh, we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. Yeehaw. <laughs> well, uh, four this week. Four. Seems to be the, the going trend, you know. Yeah. But uh, there were four noticeable ones. So let's start at the big 35. It is no secret after we were speaking about Ishtar last week, we mm-hmm. mentioned that this movie kicked the shit out of it after its first week of release. <laughs> Beverly Hills Cop 2 was released. Go, John Ashton. Whoop, whoop. That's a sound of the policeman. For- Yes, and thank you for your shares, John Ashton. Always supporting us, yeah. and uh, we look forward to getting you back on. Beverly Hills Cop 2, bigger, faster, deeper, 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 undercover, directed by Tony Scott. Yes, with more orange. <laughs> more orange and blue. <laughs> the Simpson, the yeah. Simpson Buckheimer uh, look, as I used to call it. Uh, Tony Scott obviously doing a fantastic job on Top Gun. By the way, Top Gun Maverick released uh, at the end of this month. 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. Are you getting commission on it and I've not been told? You're trying to chill Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, watch Top Gun Maverick. No, <laughs> no. Do you like uh, my new wristwatch? Yes, yes. <laughs> I feel the need with it. Yeah. Um, Tony Scott, uh, you may know him as the director of Top Gun, but also he had directed So So Fair, such as Domino, which wasn't his mm-hmm. finest hour. Uh, the Fan, which I believe was a kind of underrated movie, yeah. and true classics like True Romance, and uh, actually I'll throw Unstoppable in there, which was the Denzel Washington Runaway Train movie, which is actually he, pretty good. Did he do Bad Boys? No, it was Michael Bay. Oh, was that Michael Bay? Oh, yeah, the other guy that adopted the Simpson Bruckheimer look. Oh, totally. Yes. Totally. So, uh, Cop 2, obviously, was The Juggernaut. Uh, this was also the movie which was Chris Rock's first movie role. Yeah, he's um, he's a valet or something, isn't he? Yes, the valet at the Playboy Mansion. Yes. And uh, this was also the first ever movie shot at the Playboy Mansion. No movie had ever done it before, Beverly Hills Cop mm. 2. Uh, Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, they just party like crazy. This was also the first ever movie that I noticed the late Gilbert Gottfried, uh, who appeared as Sidney Bernstein, uh, the accountant or lawyer, whichever he was. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, improvising his way into infamy with his great <laughs> with his great delivery. Ouch, let go of my arm. Uh, and sadly, we just lost him just recently. Yeah, uh, I was connected with him on Facebook and it was sad news. And he was someone I was hoping to get onto the show and uh, it just didn't happen. Uh, as mentioned, sorry Ishtar, but Beverly Hills Cop 2 was the juggernaut that was the biggest opening weekend of 1987. It was huge. It was everywhere. And it was unoriginal because the whole plan of the alphabet crimes was an actual play on the ABC murders by Agatha Christie. Mm-hmm. Ooh, 
book, culture, novels, Arrow. books, yes. reading. Yes. Uh, I did ask the question on this. When looking at all three Beverly Hills Cop movies, does Axel Fonley only ever go to Beverly Hills when someone he knows has been shot? I think so. Although technically he went to Wally World. I don't know if Wally World is actually in Beverly Hills. <laughs> but, uh, oh, copyright, it's not Wally World, but it's uh, Wally World is National Lampions. Oh, God, yeah, of course it was. What was the one in this one? Uncle <sighs> Paul's Land or something. I don't know. <laughs> it was a crap film. That's all I know. Yeah, it was. It was bad. The only thing I remember about Beverly Hills Cop 3 is that George Lucas was in it. That was it. Oh, God, yeah, the bar with uh, Mick Garris, uh, host of Postmortem with Mick Garris, yeah. podcast that is great if you love your horror movies. Um, I also kind of, when I was watching this movie again this week, and I've seen it God knows how many times, but I watched it as a reminder. It's interesting that um, Judge Reinhold's character, and we mentioned in the John Ashton episodes, uh, the shift in that mm. character. But on his bedroom wall, he has a Cobra poster. <laughs> oh, is that is you that, know where we're going with this, nod? right? You know, is that an homage? Where, well, where is that? Look at this, okay? Sylvester Stallone was the original Axel Foley, original choice for Axel Foley, and he wanted to turn the script into what became Cobra. So he went off and did Cobra, while Beverly Hills Cop was this huge movie. Uh, add to the fact that at the time, Sylvester Stallone was going out with Bridget Nielsen. Mm -hmm who is in Beverly Hills Cop 2. And also at the time of Beverly Hills Cop 2, Tony Scott was having an affair with Bridget Nielsen. So that's kind of a nice dynamic to have there. He's like, fucking Cobra, let's put this poster on the wall. Hey, Slyer, your missus is getting the Cobra from Tony Scott. Yeah. Right. Uh, standouts for the movie. Uh, and it has that infamous Harold Faltermeyer score that... Uh, it is right up there with uh, the score of Vangelis, who we sadly also lost this week, um, which I wanted to just throw a, a quick nod in there. But uh, everyone knows the Axel F theme. And of course, this was Eddie Murphy on fire. You know, this was when he was, I think this was the turning point. This must be when he was the biggest, highest paid actor in Hollywood at the time. Oh yeah, his stock was just, it, it, I don't honestly think it was as high ever again. This was, I think, his absolute peak. Yeah. Really. And, and he had uh, a few other big movies, um, but this was, I think, by far the biggest one. I think it was all downhill after this in one oh. way or another. This, this was Eddie owning Hollywood. This would be interesting if this was around the time when Richard Mirisch was introduced to him at that party mm. because he'd obviously signed this deal with Paramount at the time of which uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2 was one. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go back and check out the Richard Mirish episode. It's a cracker. It is a cracker. Worst thing about this film that I realised again this week, a song I wish I would never hear again, and unfortunately watching this movie I did, I Want Your Sex by George Michael. <laughs> I don't actually remember that one. You don't remember that song? No, I oh don't remember God, that Oh my God, it was song. everywhere in the 80s when that came out. And it was like, ooh, the song's a bit risque. Uh, at the time and it's really not nowadays but um, yeah it's not a great song definitely not a in great inclusion to have in this kind of strip bar place <laughs> it's no. uh, in Beverly Hills Cop 2 but yes Beverly Hills Cop 2 um, not as good as the original miles better than Beverly Hills Cop 3 
and uh, a great moment for our pal John Ashton. So Beverly Hills Cop 2 is 35 this week. Okay, what we got next? Well, one of the greatest comic pairings ever. Bedeal and Skidder? No. Oh, God, better than that. Better than that. Uh, 25 years ago this week, Beavis and Butthead Do America was released. Oh, yes! <laughs> You've got to love this. I love this movie. I'm not even going to lie. That I'm still in stitches at some of this movie. Uh, created by uh, Mike Judge, Mike Judge, yeah, Mike Judge, who you know from Office Space, uh, a little series called Beavis and Butthead, which was King the, of the Hill, and of course King of yeah. the Hill. I went to see course. this in the cinema. I went to see this at the cinema yeah. as well, and uh, I couldn't get anyone to go with me, but I think I eventually managed to get a girl to come with me, and she loved it as well. Yeah. Uh, sad thing about this is Paramount executives at the time, executives again, uh, they actually envisioned this as a live action movie with. Beavis and Butthead being played by David Spade and Chris Farley. Oh, God. they just wanted to just squeeze those two into anything, didn't they? Yeah, well, the they time. obviously had um, Tommy Boy the year before, and they went and did the movie called Black Sheep, which was basically Tommy Boy done again with two different characters. It was the exact same movie and didn't fare as well, and I think that was kind of the end of the partnership for them too. What is interesting about this movie is in history this is the only animated movie that mtv has ever done really what about stuff like aeon flux that's not a that's not an animated movie that's a live action movie you know i know that they i knew that they did the shell easter run one but i could have sworn at the back of my mind they did like um like an aeon flux film an animated film no no they did an animated series Right. That I think they pieced together all of the episodes to make a movie. You know that thing they used to do on oh, DVD yeah. and stuff and claim it's a movie. Like how many how many movies has Walker Texas Ranger actually done? No, it's just two episodes stuck together on a VHS. Transformers arrival from franchise. Cybertron. You know that sort of thing. Oh yeah, yeah. it's a movie. Damn it, Thundercats ho the movie. Are mm. you sure that's not like five episodes just pinned together? Five ho. Uh, this five ho. There you go. Uh, Notable things about this movie. This was the record holder for a December weekend box office until Scream 2 knocked it off. Yeah. So this actually did break a record for a short amount of time until the, the Wes Craven horror juggernaut pretty much kicked it off. And yeah, a, and a good thing is, mentioning Chippendale Rescue Rangers, there is a nice little Beavis and Butthead bit in there, uh, which hopefully you'll notice when you do watch it. Uh, this was muted for a sequel so many times and it never happened, but you'll be happy to know that Paramount Plus is greenlighting that sequel, finally. Nice. I wonder if they're going to still be young or if they're going to end up like middle-aged. I hope they're still going to be young, even though Mike Judge's voice isn't as uh, pliable as it once was. I don't know. I, I'd love to see them do the Bill and Ted face the music yeah. where, where they are actually just older losers. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, Beavis and Butthead, 25 years ago this week, Beavis and Butthead do America. Brilliant movie, catch it up, it is hilarious still. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely cracking. So, what have we got for numero trois? Uh, number two? Oh, that's that's number three. I know, I know, I know. Okay, uh, in 1993 this week, Cliffhanger was released. Oh, cracking film. It is. Yeah. Uh, when Relly Harlan gets it wrong, he does stuff like Driven, Cutthroat Island and The Legend of Hercules. As we mentioned, was it last week? Yeah. Yeah, when we were talking about Driven. Uh, when he gets it right, we have Cliffhanger. It's a proper old school action film. 
Oh yeah, it really is. You know, the, there's the grizzle guy coming to terms with stuff. There's the mustache twirling supervillain, you know, in kind of like the Hans Gruber <laughs> mold with John Lithgow just chewing. He's chewing the scenery of that movie so yeah. much. It's this, wonderful. This was a decade when any kind of diehard clone needed someone to do an English accent to be the villain. Yeah. Right. And uh, John Lithgow's accent. I'm 100% convinced watching it this week that this is where Tom Hardy got the idea for Bane's voice. <laughs> it's from John Lithgow. Get off. I haven't got on it yet. <laughs> you listen to it. You listen to John Lithgow's accent in Cliffhanger uh, as Quaylen, and uh, you will hear Tom Hardy's Bane. Actually, on a side note, before you carry on, where did they come up with the names for these characters? Was it just kind of like a random kind of scrabble board that they just shook up the bag and then just pulled out letters at a time? I, I think that's probably the way to do it. That guy's it's, name it's is of... Quaylen. Okay, that's a triple word score. There you go. Yeah. Well, uh, this movie also is a current Guinness record holder. First stunt work? Yeah, very good. It hey. has the costliest aerial stunts ever performed on movie. And that goes to Simon Crane, who got $1 million to cross from one plane to another plane on that fire <gasps> while it was actually in the air. Yes! yes. How I to make a million in 60 seconds. To be perfectly honest, I think most people need to get paid that amount of money to do that kind of stunt. Like, Goody was already wearing brown trousers. True. Well, they actually had to shoot that one scene in the United States, which is one of the only scenes where that was filmed in the United States. Uh, because the stunt was actually illegal to do in Europe, where they were actually filming the rest of it. Right. But Simon Crane made one million to do it, and he didn't even make it. He did not make it to the door. You will notice that there is a snidey cut there when he actually does reach the door, because uh, he didn't make it. Right, okay. <laughs> but um, Stallone chose to do this movie uh, to conquer his fear of heights, apparently. And also... Uh, to have his first hit of the 1990s because before this he had done Rocky V, Stop On My Mum Will Shoot and Oscar. It was not a good start to the 90s. No, and then he ruined it all with Judge Dredd as well, didn't he? Ooh. 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 Uh, He he did some stuff in there that was actually all right because he did Demolition Man at the same year as this. So we can forgive him. Um, This is another movie where a sequel has been... Constantly, but a sequel was actually written called The Dam, uh, as in D A M, not the Dam. Uh, it never came to fruition. I think Daylight is probably the closest that you could class as a cliffhanger sequel. In fact, you could actually believe that it is the same Stallone character, yeah, you could do. in both Cliffhanger and Daylight and get away with it. And there is there's major logic gaps in a movie, the biggest logic gap is the fact. <laughs> I love it. The fact that the the Denver Mint actually only create coins, not dollar bills. So that robbery is kind of ludicrous. Oh yeah, but you've got to have these. You've got to have these lapses of logic. You've got to have this willing suspension of disbelief. Because if oh, you my... didn't, you'd never have any films at all. <laughs> but I would so be in line of them, like hunting for all of these like loose coins, like they're Mario <laughs> yeah. jumping around all of these hills. <laughs> that would have been an absolute brilliant version yeah. uh, we mentioned John Lithgow and his terrible English accent but uh, Christopher Walken was originally considered and I think he was originally cast before he turned out which would have been even better 
but also strangely, David Bowie and Brian Ferry. Okay, Bowie, I can understand because he's had a fairly reasonable acting career. You know, Labyrinth, Man Who Fell to Earth, blah blah blah. Brian Zoolander Ferry? playing David Bowie. Yeah. Brian Ferry. Yeah. I want um, my money. <laughs> Tell me where's the money? Otherwise, I'm going to shoot the girl. Oh. <laughs> now you know. Now I want to see that. We missed out. Yeah. I think they just selected who are the people with the really distinct kind of odd voices. But um, okay, uh, the standouts for this movie, I am going to say, it is all about the whole production side, putting this movie together, the stunt work, mm-hmm. um, the, the all of it. Everything is fantastic. Uh, the as I say, the worst it has to be Lithgow's accent. But I will also lay blame here. The one thing that really does not gel falls on Janine Turner, no, the who plays. The, uh... Yeah, and it's it's not her fault. But her, her character is not really given anything to work with. I don't think, um, and she is just the the woman in peril <laughs> by the end of it, but. She really does not throw herself into the movie, and she's not really been a big name ever since. I think this is the biggest movie she's ever done in that kind of, you know, the main female lead. But when you look at Caroline Goddard, who plays the woman on Quaylen's crew, mm-hmm. and she is just fabulous. What a treasure she is to like the British acting scene. Just really knows how to deliver with what she's got. And she's not a secondary character, but you know, in a movie that has Craig Fairbrass in it. I know that was like his first Hollywood film, but he comes off with South London. Yeah. That was a f- good striker. Right. <laughs> but no, you know, he, he does what he does. For a character who's such a company, but his name is Delmar. Yeah. Always in Just... London's burning. <laughs> Sean Bean was not available at the time. <laughs> <sighs> Calling Craig. Okay, so yes, 1993 Cliffhanger was released this week. No, oh, we're getting some good 90s stuff, so what, uh, what else have we got next? We're going to go back to the 80s. We're going to go actually back to 1983. Ooh. I wanted to throw this one in there. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but I thought, I've got to talk about this this week. I don't know how much I can talk about it if you've not seen it. So, in 1983, an anime movie called The Professional, Goal Goal 13, was released. I've never even heard of this, let alone seen it. Oh my god! This was um, directed by Osamu Tezaki, uh, the late Osamu Tezaki. Uh, he directed, um, it was anime, is what he did. So stuff like Tomorrow's Joe 2, uh, Haiku Guy, Legend of Moby Dick, and more famously Space Adventure Cobra, which I'm sure even you would know about. No. No, okay. Well, this was actually uh, very different in the anime sense that the action in it was very inspired by movies of the West. And the strange thing happening is that many films of the West, after this film was released, used this as inspiration. <laughs> so it's a movie about... He's a hitman, okay? Uh, it's Goku is his name, but it's Goku13 to everyone else. That's his call sign, like 007 type. And it's very well done in the James Bond mold, but much more violent. Uh, so he beds a woman probably every 10 to 15 minutes. He shoots countless amounts of people. He drives a 
Ford Thunderbird in one scene, which is utterly ridiculous. But this movie was among the first ever movies animated to use an early version of CGI. Okay. Uh, another movie called Lensman was the other one around this time that really incorporated very early CGI. It's very noticeable. They do this um, Apache helicopter attack on this building and all of the helicopters are CGI. And I've got to admit, you know, it, it looks really fake now, but back in the day, it was absolutely amazing. Now, I love the professional Golgo 13. Uh, it's not one of the greatest movies ever, but it is one of those movies that you could swear if they did a live action version of it, you'd be like, Chow Yun-Fat would do that role. I think Chow Yun-Fat would do any role, to be honest. Spring roll, sausage roll, anything. You any love him, don't you? I love Chow. I really love Chow Yun-Fat. Uh, but um, the professional Golgo 13, I class as one of the godfathers of what anime is today. So you look at movies from the 80s like Akira or Fist of the North Star. Golgo 13 is in that pantheon of movies from that era. Right. And it's a movie I know you would just love. It has everything you love about a, a Hollywood action movie, but done as an anime, following a very Americanized kind of narrative, not your typical Japanese narrative of an action movie would be, which is you're know, full of exposition or, you know, they'll stop and, you know, discuss something halfway through a sword fight. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and there'll, there'll be that shot where they'll, like, come together with swords and then the camera will pan very, very slowly across the hero's face while it, while yeah. it has an interior monologue. But it, it follows yeah. the end bit where he's he's, he's got to um, he's got to enter this building to take out the main bad guy. Right? But it's done very Game of Death style where you've got all of these various villains that he's got to fight, these different hitmen and, and everything. And it's just so cool. It is such a cool little movie that does not get probably the love that it deserves but i wanted to give it a shout out this week if you haven't seen it you have got to track the professional go go 13 down in 1983 it was released this week into theaters in japan so uh, we eventually got it through the manga video label in like 1992 93 i think yeah that'd be around about when it was really ramping up in this country oh yeah, i saw then. everything i yeah. saw everything that got released um, but yeah, it is worthy of an inclusion and you should check it out. Ah, okay. Right. So that was for really, really good suggestions. Uh, three of which I've seen, which wow. is, is pretty good going. That's a record. Yeah. That is a record. Cole Guinness. <laughs> yes. I'll we have, have one. We have another record. <laughs> Put a flag in this week. We're done. Uh, speaking of done, we are coming up to the last segment, uh, with our interview with Cy Boris and Ethan Reef. And it has been an amazing two weeks previously. And now we're getting into, uh, well, what is he talking about today? Are we finally getting to the Robin Hood stuff? Yes. Beautiful. And uh, we've got a very interesting nominate five coming up. Yes. Haven't <laughs> and, we just. And stick around uh, for after the show to hear how hard that nominate five was <laughs> to compile together. Uh, well. Let's bring our guests in for the last part of the interview. Well, like you say, I mean, Supercell, uh, it had the two seasons. Uh, we're kind of planning for a third. And if so, where were the series of focused on moving forward? 
Yeah, we we actually we had had our early cyanide. Just the two of us had had held our own in-house early discussions about what the third season would have been, and there was a decent to good expectation of us getting a third season because the second season had received pretty much equal or greater critical acclaim from the first. I don't know on the commercial side, I think it was probably equal. You know, it didn't, it, we didn't get a bigger audience or bigger sales for Showtime, but we didn't drop either. So we had a decent expectation of, of being renewed for a third season. And then we sort of fell, we kind of fell victim again to that um, regime change thing. Uh, to to pause on the creative content if there had been a third season, which we can discuss also, which I don't think we've ever discussed before anywhere, so that might be interesting. But but what happened was um, Showtime got bought. Um, actually, it was the I guess the year before Showtime, the second season, the year of our second season, Showtime had been bought by CBS Viacom, and they hadn't really gotten into the weeds with our show or any of the shows on Showtime. They sort of left Showtime to its own devices with the sole exception of cracking down on on episodic budgets. And that hit us on our second season, which was a serious challenge because the second season of Sleeper Cell, unlike the first, which almost entirely takes place in Los Angeles, the second season takes place half in Los Angeles and half around the world in in the Balkans and the Middle East and much more ambitious physical production uh, situation. And so we had like tighter budgetary constraints while we had to ex- ex- sort of, you know, spend more money, right? Or find a way, have to find a way to squeeze more production value out of the, the same or lesser dollars, which thanks to us and our very hardworking and talented uh, collaborators and, and crew people and, and line producers, we were able to do and pull off pretty well. But then the second year that CBS Viacom was in charge and our show was on the chopping block, it, it just didn't, it, they were going to, they were going to get more involved in the dollars and cents and maybe even the creative content notes, development notes and the, the people in charge at Showtime just made their decision that um, I remember we got that phone call. Cy and I got that phone call where the president of Showtime delivered the bad news, you know, um, that we weren't coming back for a third season. And I think he was a little bit bummed about it because he it wasn't his favorite show. It wasn't a show in his own personal taste. He would have gone out of his way to watch, but he respected it and he admired the quality with which we had been able to deliver it, you know, episode after episode. And, and I think he was a little bummed that he, that he had to give us that, uh, your canceled news, you know, but he did it. He delivered it in a, in a, in a diplomatic, you know, uh, sad, sad, uh, sad way. Uh, I would say something somewhat radical in that. I would say two things. I'm, I'm actually, Maybe Ethan feels this way or, or not. I don't know if we've talked about it explicitly. I was and am actually relieved that we didn't get a third season of Sleeper Cell for two reasons. One, we ended the second season. We ended the series in a way that was really bold and very daring that I don't think if we knew that was the final episode of the show, we would have ever done that episode. In a weird way, we ended the show a little bit on a cliffhanger, 
but thematically in a really interesting way, thinking we would probably come back and do a third season. And in a way, now I look back at that final episode of the series and I'm thinking, wow, that's great. And we probably wouldn't have done that if we knew it was the last episode of the series. I think a lot of shows that know they're going to end, they get very self-conscious and they try to tie up all these loose ends and do this, that, and the other. And we didn't have any of that because we, I think, honestly, when we made the final episode of season two, we pretty much thought there would be a third season. So we just sort of did a very pure, creative sort of ending for the season, which ultimately, I think, was a great ending for the show. The other thing is it was exhausting to do that show. And, you know, we sort of got hoisted our own petard in a weird way. And again, I'm not saying this to be self-effacing it's just that the show turned out so well after the pilot and the first couple episodes that Ethan and I were under tremendous pressure from the network and from ourselves to just keep the level of quality you know it's tough I mean sometimes you like stumble into like oh man I did something really good how am I going to do that again you know (laughs) and you're just like and so it was a lot of, I mean, it was great, but it was a lot of, lot of fucking work. I mean, we worked our asses off on that show to keep the level of quality. You know, you, you, we did the pilot. It turned out really good. Okay, we got to do a new ep- another episode two. It's got to be just as good. Okay, Whew, okay, that was good. Oh, episode three, we got to do episode, episode three has got to be good. To keep that up, and again, these are cable seasons. You know, we were only doing eight, ten episode seasons, but... It was a tremendous amount of quality control on that show. And I remember being really burnt out at the end of season two and almost feeling relieved that we could move on to other things and that we didn't have to like, oh, God, how are we going to do this for a third season? How are we going to keep it? How are we going to make it just as good? How are we going to keep that quality bar as high as it as it is? And again, I mean, we would have done it. We would have killed ourselves to doing it. But I just remember in a weird way sort of feeling a great weight off off my shoulders of like, oh, man. Well, it sucks that we're not going to do a third season, but at least we don't have that pressure anymore. And a lot of it was self-imposed. But, you know, it, it's, it's sort of that be careful what you wish for thing. Sometimes, you know, you get this shot and you – sort of knock it out of the park and you're like oh my god i got it but i got to do that again i got to keep doing it (laughs) you know how do you do that i'm sure athletes have that all the time right Mm -hmm. you hit that home run and you're like now i'm the home run hitter i got to do this every time i was less uh less in a celebratory mood when we got canceled (laughs) i I didn't say (laughs) celebratory ethan that's I cool. said relieved. No, I, 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 I heard relieved. You said, yeah, yeah. I said well, relieved. Less in, a po- <laughs> less in a positive mood, but but you know, it was fine. It was fine. We moved on. Third season. I think it was just really. I don't know if anybody is familiar with the show, but there was always this. There were two leads. Michael Ely played a, a, a Muslim FBI agent who had infiltrated the sleeper cell in the states that was uh, run by a very charismatic. Middle Eastern terrorist played by the actor Oded Fair, probably most famous from being in the Mummy movies. Mm-hmm. 
the Brendan Fraser movie. He's a terrific actor. And so this was like the show in some ways was a two-hander because it was the Muslim FBI agent versus the Muslim terrorists and their sort of philosophical and, you know, issues and dynamics and going up against each other. And so the third season was going to resolve that one way or another. And because we always felt like, well, we can't keep these these two guys, these two characters are the heart of the show, but we can't keep this sort of plot going on forever because we're not like 24. We're not a wacky fan to comic book fantasy show. Um, I remember the third season more in like some specifics of of, you know, how how the plot was going to how the plot was going to play out, which was going to involve like a radicalized American, you know, from a particular background. And also that um, Michael Ealy as our FBI hero. Uh, he was going to be a was, handler, was gonna wasn't he? Was going to be a handler. Yeah, he was going to be running the undercover. Um, which As again, opposed like to being side- an agent in the field, he was going to be he was going to be handling like a new younger agent or something. Yeah, yeah, a new a new younger guy. That may have been a, a very critical and award winning success, but um, your biggest commercial success probably came in two thousand and eight when your original story Kung Fu Panda gets picked up by DreamWorks Animation. Now, most of what you had written, as far as I'm aware, uh, in both the story and the characters remained in the movie. Um, so did you expect this to become this huge phenomena? Um, that's I mean, there's a couple of things in that in that <laughs> statement and question, the, which is which is very interesting. Um, the first thing to, that I have to say is. Like the definition of original. In a way. Kung Fu Panda was our original story, but it was a work for hire. DreamWorks, like Sai mentioned earlier, DreamWorks had read our script to Bulletproof Monk, and they asked us to come in and have a meeting. And they talked to us about wanting to do a movie about a Kung Fu Panda. And they had actually spent like the previous year in-house with like exec story executives researching and writing ideas about what a kung fu panda movie could be what the plot should be they had these like some summaries and synopses of like every samurai and hong kong martial arts film ever made they had binders full of these reference materials that they had compiled over the previous year and they had struggled to like synthesize it into a story, right? Which I don't think for people who are who love storytelling, that's not such a shock because I don't know that that process they had gone through for the previous year was necessarily the best way to arrive at a cool, compelling, interesting story, right? But but it did it did give them this like treasure trove of sort of like reference material for East Asian uh, iconography and 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 legends and uh, stories and stuff and animals because they also listed every kind of uh, every kind of you know wildlife that that existed in China or whatever. It was just it was just interesting. It was something we had never experienced before being shown all of this you know reference material, and and they also had somebody in-house at DreamWorks had written a version of what Kung Fu Panda was supposed to be, you know? 
And so they asked us if we'd be interested in trying to rethink this or come back with a version of it that, that they'd be excited enough to, to want to try and start down the road to making it into a movie. And the truth is, of that entire like encyclopedia of material that they ended up presenting to us, the one thing that I have to give DreamWorks Animation profound credit and due for is the title, Kung Fu Panda. Because that's amazing. It's just, I remember, you know, Sai and I, when we left, we're like, man, that's, 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 that's just great. Like, it's a hilarious title. With, it's a great title. You can come up with a lot of different things, and they could, they could all be potentially cool. The things that they had come up with were, were not so cool in our estimation, or it, give them credit in their estimation, because they had decided it was time to get outside, you know, writers. And, I, mm-hmm. and we weren't the only people they interviewed about this project or talked to. Here's the three things that we contributed and we came up with for Kung Fu Panda, which I think are hugely uh, important to the success of the movie. The idea that the Kung Fu Panda Poe was going to be a huge fan of martial arts and Kung Fu people, even though he couldn't do Kung Fu himself. This is directly inspired from an old Jackie Chan movie called Drunken Master. Mm-hmm. where Jackie Chan works at the Kung Fu studio. He's the janitor. He cleans up at the Kung Fu studio, but he can't do Kung Fu himself, but he's a huge fan of all these great Kung Fu masters and would desperately want to learn Kung Fu. And the idea that like a overweight, out-of-shape panda could be like the biggest fan of martial arts, it was like that was just a very charming, fun idea. That's something that Ethan and I came up with. We also came up with the Furious Five, which ironically are inspired or named after, uh, uh, it used to be a, a, one of the early rap hip-hop bands, was Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Google it, kids. That, it, that the martial, different, different martial arts styles being based on or inspired by the movements and the fighting stances of different kinds of animals, which from the minute that we left the office with the, with the, with the, with the concept, the movie is going to be called Kung Fu Panda. Both Sai and I, when we, when we got out of the office, we were like, Oh, uh, animal styles, animal styles. It's, we've got to use that. We've got to use tiger it. style, mantis style. So the idea was like, just make those animals. Those are the animals that, that are in the movies. That's the Furious Five. And then the third thing is the bad guy, Tai Lung, who actually is named after a very big Hong Kong movie star, action star from the 70s and 80s named Tai Lung, who actually co-stars in Better Tomorrow, Andrew. Uh, the older brother, yeah, yeah, yes. So, so, and it's funny. I don't want nobody ever picks that up. It's so obvious to us. Like, oh, it's Tai Lung. Why is that? Why hasn't anybody picked it up? But there's. Uh, I, I will add one other, and I will add one other thing. I think you got to add a fourth thing, Sai, which is that Sai and myself, Sai, mostly because as a kid growing up, he'd been a huge kung fu movie fan, and just sort of like lived and breathed that stuff and myself because when I was when I was uh, a little younger than when we got onto Kung Fu Panda I had 
gone to China to work on a low budget movie for a friend of mine who was a, directing it. And I worked as the assistant director in Beijing and I had met my future wife there. And then I'd gone back the next year, gotten married, spent a decent amount of time in, in, in China, come back to the U S with my, with my wife and had, you know, started a family, had kids and gone back and forth. So half of my family, uh, literally were Chinese. And the other element that Sinai definitely laid the groundwork and foundation for and, and contributed to in the movie is a sincere love and respect for Chinese culture and Chinese martial arts. And even though the project was always a comedy and it was always filled with humor, all the comedy and all the humor from us in the beginning of the project was always with the with the the environment and with the context and with the martial arts and with the characters it was never at their expense you know it always came from a place mm -hmm. of of really deep and sincere you know respect and 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 even like love and and to some extent admiration you know yeah, it was funny. I was going to say that it was interesting because we worked on the movie, I think, for a, a little over a year. And then we went on actually to do Sleeper Cell. And we got a call a couple years later from an executive at DreamWorks who said, hey, we actually have a rough cut of Kung Fu Panda done. And uh, do you guys want to come in and check it out? And we were like, oh, Jesus, it's been like, I don't know, three or four years. I mean, is there anything left of our, our movie in there, our script? And he said, oh, yeah, it's mostly your script because we basically – we've been developing it for four years. We basically threw everything out and went back to the original version that you guys wrote. So there's a lot of your stuff in the movie. <laughs> so it was it – was, the whole point is that – the reason all that stuff is still there is because the final directors that actually did the movie, uh, John Osborne, I forget the other director's name, basically literally went back to, I think, the original story treatment that Ethan and I had written, and that's what they sort of based the movie off of. Um, and again, at that point, we were off doing Sleeper Cell, and they brought in uh, two uh, really great comedy writers, animation guys, Um to do sort of the final passes and the dialogue passes and everything. And, uh, but that's why we ended up still getting story credit on the movie and why it's a movie we're still intimately involved with because it, it went through those years and years and years of development and then sort of was almost like a circle. They came right back to sort of the version that Ethan and I had worked on for that year, uh, and I think I want to say like 2002, 2003. And, you know, and the movie's great. It's, it's really, it turned out great. It is. Uh, and it's, it's you know, probably, it's, it's, it's probably the best quality feature film that our names are in the credits of, uh, honestly, you know, I mean, we love a lot of our work and certainly Demon Knight is awesome, but overall, at least for me, if, if I had a rate, you know, what's the best movie that, that our names are in the credits of? It, it would probably be Kung Fu Panda. Also, it's a movie that our kids could watch because the joke is almost everything we had written up to that point was all like rated R 
or for grownups or for adults. And at that point, we all had kids. So it was like, oh, finally. Though the whole joke is from when we wrote it to when the movie came out, our kids had aged. I, I, I jokingly say our kids were just right on the cusp to still, they were just young enough to still think Kung Fu Panda was cool when it came out. And had it come out like two years later, we would have been screwed all over again because mm-hmm. our kids would have been too old and like, ah, this movie's stupid. But uh, they were just young enough that it was a cool thing. Well, in 2010, Ridley Scott directs Robin Hood, starring Russell Crowe. Yeah. Now, this was developed from your script, Nottingham, which was basically Sherwood Holmes, I guess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's good. I've never heard the... that before. That's great. No. Sherwood Holmes. Perfect. Yeah. And this is basically where the sheriff of Nottingham was basically kind of like a forensic detective and Robin Hood was the bad guy, which sounds just awesome. It really does. So Russell Crowe apparently thought so as well. The script kind of became the subject of a bidding war. And how did all of this start and what happened once the war was won by, I guess it was Imagine Entertainment? Man, it it all started, I'm like, I'm the big history guy writ large. And then I'm a big medieval history guy when you, you know, drill down into my particular areas of obsessive interest. And over the years of Cy and my uh, professional uh, partnership, I guess I had we had talked about, or I had talked to him about different possible medieval period pieces that we might write as a spec script, meaning something we just write on our own on speculation and then put out into the marketplace and you hope that somebody bites and wants to buy it. And at some point... I think it was while we were, it may have started while we were actually at the end of our Kung Fu Panda writing experience. I, either Sai or I, maybe I was pushing Sai about some medieval idea and maybe Sai said, eh, if you do, if we, if we do Robin Hood, at least Robin Hood, I mean, I'll care about Robin Hood enough that I might want to do a medieval movie or write a medieval movie. And because, you know, it's an I, I, iconic uh, pop culture character, right? He is an uh, iconic pop culture character. And that struck both of us like, oh, it's been a while since there's been a major studio Robin Hood movie. And maybe, maybe we could do that. And then we started talking about it. And the idea of flip it on its head and tell it through a different perspective from a different POV, uh, which screamed out to us as, well, the sheriff. Everybody, the, sheriff is, the sheriff of Nottingham is one of the biggest villains in, uh, you know, in storytelling history. Why don't we just make him the hero? And that kind of stuck you know, as something that just seemed interesting and compelling to the two of us. Unlike Ridley Scott, (laughs) jumping ahead to years down the line when the project actually went forward. And so later on, we actually sat down. We worked out, you know, what the story would be. Robin Hood didn't really play the part of the villain. He's introduced as a potential villain, and he's definitely a rogue. But in the end, he's he's more of just a sort of like, bad boy you know who gets embraced by the powers that be because they can sort of use him to attain their own political ends whereas the sheriff is not 
a sort of popular, you know, he's not somebody to wave a flag about and raise the people's uh, enthusiasm for. So he sort of just gets kicked to the side of the curb. And that's just the life of, uh, of a public servant uh, cop slash uh, local leader. Um, and there was a love triangle with Maid Marion between the sheriff and, and Robin Hood and Maid Marion. And again, the sheriff being sort of like beleaguered, ironbound man of integrity, public servant, and Robin Hood yeah. being like the sexy rogue bad boy. And yeah. of course, Maid Marion ends up going for the sexy rogue bad boy at the end. And the other, uh, the other, the other cool element that we incorporated into our screenplay was Eleanor, Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine, uh, having a big part in in the story. Who, you know, is the mother of the wife of one French king, then the wife of an English king, then mm-hmm. the mother of like two or three different English English kings and at the time of the of the story that we were telling uh Richard the Lionheart is a prisoner in in Germany because he went off to the crusades and then he got captured on his way home and his brother John is the prince and his mother who prefers Richard over John is just trying to sort of like keep uh, John from taking over everything back in England and so that was sort of like the the backdrop, the 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 environment, whatever that the Robin Hood and and the sheriff and Marion story uh, took place in front of. And we wrote the script, and it was it, it was a big success for us. It um, Russell Crowe's agent read it and gave it to Russell Crowe to read, and Russell Crowe signed on to play the sheriff, which was amazing. And it went out, and like. You know, like I think you mentioned, it, there was actually a bidding war, which was that's the first time in our careers that it happened. It means more than one, more than one company wanted to buy this item from us, which is the best situation if you're selling something that you could find yourself in, right? Um, and in the end, like you said, uh, Imagine Entertainment, you know, was also attached, um, and they we we sold it to Universal. Um, we actually sold it for a tiny bit less money to Universal than some other studio had offered because of Imagine's relationship with them. And I guess Russell Crowe's relationship with them. They had just sort of like been making this other movie with him, the American gangster, right? With Russell Crowe and Denzel Washington. And it was like the greatest triumph of our careers at the time. Um, and then side you want to pick it up from that high point where we well, have all the money here's and the joke yeah, all the yeah. joy and then, and then and then ridley scott got involved and then what happened was the studio what everybody fell in love with was this notion of we're gonna reunite ridley scott and russell crowe doing a period sword action movie and nothing else mattered at that point and so what happened was Ridley Scott, who never really liked the script, I think he, if you know, he was like, "Who cares about this? Everybody knows Robin Hood. Nobody gives a shit about the sheriff. Nottingham's a dumb title. Everybody in England will think it's about a soccer team, a football team." It was just like Ridley Scott hated the script. So the last thing you want is the director who signs on to hate the script, right? There was a version early on 
when it had not totally morphed into a, I always say, Robin Hood origin story with a 45-year-old Robin Hood. Very, <laughs> very ultimately <laughs> bizarre choice. Uh, there was a version early on when um, Russell Crowe was going to play, still playing the sheriff. Sienna Miller was going to play Maid Marian, and Sam Riley was actually playing Robin Hood. Okay. If you know Sam Riley, he played uh, he played Ian Curtis in the Joy Division yeah. movie yeah. Control, amongst other things. Uh, uh, and that was sort of cool. But basically, Ridley hated the script so much that they literally spent, as Ethan said, they spent two or three years like redeveloping the script because I think Universal and I also think Russell Crowe kept pushing back, like well, really, this is still a good idea. We should do this. And so really, uh, I hate this idea. And so there were all these versions, all these different versions, trying to somehow keep some sense of the original concept. There was one where Robin Hood was the sheriff by day, and then he would put on a hood, and he would be Robin Hood at night. There were all kind of crazy <laughs> yeah, like versions. The, the Zorro, the Zorro version. Yeah. yeah, there were crazy versions for years. And then finally, everybody just threw up their hands and were like, okay, let, let, just let Ridley do his Robin Hood movie. Yeah. Um, I can imagine him being there like, this uh, This Robin Hood movie is terrible, but don't worry, Prometheus is going to be great. Oh, yeah, that's a Ringo Prometheus <laughs> thing. Yeah. Prometheus dig, random oh, Prometheus dig. Here's, here's what I'll say. Oh, the Ridley man. Scott Robin Hood is not a terrible movie. It's not a great movie. No, it's just okay. It's just a typically, you know, well-produced, it's, it's okay. It's not bad. I think... In a weird it's way, those, it's the it's the only time you'll ever see World War II landing craft deployed in the in the you know uh, in medieval <laughs> yeah medieval century. times yeah. yeah. I I will say that it still has it 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 has a similar structure to our original script in that it opens with that battle in the Crusades and 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 sort of leads into like going back to England to Nottingham to that that element and, and then also, also Eleanor Aquitaine Eleanor yeah. Yeah, she's not as big a part as we had her in our script, but she still has a somewhat legit part in the movie. So that's those are sort of like the last dregs holdover of of what we had written, you know, uh, originally. But yeah, as Ethan always says, it was the greatest triumph of our career that became probably the biggest disappointment because I still think it's a great idea for a Robin Hood movie. And ironically, Russell Crowe would have been great as the sheriff. Because, again, Russell Crowe has that gravitas, you know, and the idea of a guy like Russell Crowe going up against a more flamboyant, you know, I'm the rogue Robin Hood. I'm like the bad boy. All the chicks dig. And I'm like hanging out in the woods and Robin from the rich. And then here's this sort of just like hardcore dude. You're an outlaw. I got to do my job. I got to bring you in that sort of those two characters butting heads. It would have been really fun. But, you know. Maybe there's an alternate multiverse someplace where that movie actually got made. Yeah, and, and, and we always, we'd always envisioned uh, Colin Farrell. You know, Colin Farrell would have been a great, uh, great oh, Robin great Robin Hood our, back. Yeah, our, young yeah. Colin opposite, Farrell, that's opposite, right. Uh, Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe. Ah, he could potentially be playing the sheriff roundabout now, though, couldn't he? Or he could play the uh, <laughs> cartographer who gets lost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I always feel, I did feel bad for Russell Crowe though because I there all the stories were like oh Russell Crowe has to get into shape to play this movie and 
he's got a bicycle 10 hours a day and stop drinking and all this stuff. And you've noticed when you see the final movie, there's one scene where Russell Crowe takes his shirt off. And, ah, this guy, he's sucking it in, man. Russell is, like, sucking it in. It's like, uh, I got to get through this one shot with my shirt off, and then I'm fine. Uh, but it is, like I said, it's it's a weird movie because it, it's a Robin Hood. Ridley decided to do a Robin Hood origin story with a 45-year-old leading man. I just don't understand. <laughs> I still don't understand that. It's just strange. Shouldn't Robin Hood be at the end of his career when he's Russell Crowe's age? I don't get it. Anyhow. I don't know. I've I've got the uh, extended version of Robin Hood on Blu-ray here that I still never have watched. <laughs> oh. Man, I didn't know that they had released an extended an version. Extended version. Oh my god. You yeah. know the one thing I, I agree with what Sai said. I don't think it's a bad movie. I don't think it's a particularly good movie. I think it's a kind of like uh, you know, it's okay. It's a mediocre but very well made. The one thing that I think is exceptionally good about that movie is the end credits the visuals on the end credits which are like art they're like some kind of and i've never looked into it i don't know where they came from it's or like where, animated you know. watercolor it's or, just or really, it's really i mean cool. at least for me when when i when i saw it i was struck by wow maybe there was a reason for me to sit through the previous you know however many hours that was because these end credits are really cool. Maybe, maybe not really worth sitting through all that. But, but really hey, Ethan, cool. I don't know why it popped into my head, but you talk about thematically. It, for some reason, the, there's a line that Eleanor of Aquitaine says at the end of our uh, Robin Hood script to the sheriff, and she says something like, "Men like you, who are steeped in law and arithmetic." Uh, help a kingdom to function but the kingdom wouldn't exist without men like robin hood because these are the kind of guys that make men proud to be english and in a weird way it it was sort of like the notion of people that do the real work versus like celebrity culture in an odd way i think that's something else that that was sort of fun about that script and sort of interesting was the notion that robin hood's like the hero He's got all the trappings of a hero. Of course, people are going to rally around this guy. He's a natural-born leader. He's charismatic. He's sexy. The girls love him. But really, the sheriff is the kind is the guy that gets the shit done. Mm. Who gets no acclaim? Yeah. Who gets no? Who's stuck in a dead end job? Right? Oh man, I'm here and now I got to raise taxes because, uh the the you know Richard's you kidnapped the and they. Yeah. Yeah, I think it it, it might have been that she mentioned Robin Hood and her son the king, you know, Richard because that was another that was another uh, aspect of of the screenplay was that Richard was a guy who really liked uh going off to war and slaughtering the enemy and speaking French poetry and couldn't even speak the English language even though or you know, had no interest in speaking it even though he was the king of England uh which Whatever, yeah, those were those were all things that were in that uh, that were part of that part of that screenplay. Well, it just goes to prove that no matter how rich you are, you still need someone to clean the toilets. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's it, it's Oddly funny you enough. Know one of the opening. Well, go ahead, side. <laughs> no, I was going to say it's funny because this phenomenon of something getting so totally changed that it's almost unrecognizable. I realize this is 
as old as the history of Hollywood. I was watching uh, uh, was watching Sunset Boulevard recently, the great mm. Billy Wilder movie Brilliant. with uh, William Holden. And William Holden's a screenwriter. And he has a literally a line in the movie. He says, yeah, uh, I wrote a movie about uh, uh, Depression-era uh, farmers in the Dust Bowl, and they finally made it, and it's a submarine picture. So <laughs> the idea that like an Oki movie in the Dust Bowl could become a submarine movie, a war, it's like this, this has always been going on. You know, it's the idea that this sort of revisionist Robin Hood movie becomes like just this sort of generic, it's, it got changed so much. It's like, it's as old as Hollywood history. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, when working with other writers, uh, what advice would you give to uh, new writers that are entering the field who have to relinquish part of their script to others? I mean, look, the, the, the process is inherently collaborative. If you want to write something and have it be 100% yours, you should write novels or write poetry. Uh, maybe well, write or, or write screenplays on your own, and then you have to collaborate in order for it to actually get No, but you if know, you want to write movies to get the them made, even, yeah, I mean, the point is that it's a collaborative medium. You can't, a movie is a, a screenplay is a blueprint. It, it, it's not a literary work on its own, though I think, you know, obviously you aspire to write something that's well-written, and there's probably some screenplays that are incredibly well-written. At the end of the day, it's just, it's like a blueprint for a house, you know? You can have the greatest blueprint, but then you still need all these people to come together to build your house. So I think the problem is... Writing is, as Ethan says earlier, such an intimate thing, and you put so much of yourself into a screenplay, and yet you have to, your ego has to be strong enough to like hand that over to directors, producers, actors, actors who want to change the dialogue, directors who want to, well, change this scene from a cool construction site to an abandoned warehouse. <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes these. Look, sometimes these decisions are positive, and, and you know I, we have two extreme examples. I think the people that made Kung Fu Panda took our original script and enhanced it, and kept what was great about it and made it better. I think Ridley Scott did the exact opposite to our Robin Hood movie. He basically took something that was original and fresh and interesting and made it something you've seen a thousand times before, but. You know, this is this is the job, unfortunately. So I'll, I'll I'll answer it. I'll answer it in the other context in terms of a writer who's debating or choosing whether they should write screenplays or movies or television shows alone on their own or in partnership with somebody else. The way Cy and I have worked for more than three decades. Right. And my answer is it's a trade off. There are things that you will gain you will gain the fact that two heads are better than one it, you know clichés exist for a reason most of the time it's because they hold profound truths right at least that's my opinion two heads are better than one you get to do twice as much thinking twice as much uh work at at in the same time if one of the two people involved is having a bad day or having a bad week or not feeling the material, the other one probably 
isn't suffering those same uh, challenges, right? And can help the person who's not feeling it um, up and, and further along. Every piece of material has to get through the filter or the judgment or the taste of another person before it ever gets out to the outside world where it will be judged in incredibly harsh terms if you're trying to be a professional or, or a successful uh, professional, right? So those are all absolute benefits of, of having a writing partner. Um, the downside is, is much more narrow and specific, which is, you know, if you're somebody who believes deep down inside that your original creative material or whatever, your, your writing ability, because maybe nowadays most of your work you'll be paid for is to adapt or uh, remake, you know, rewrite things that have already existed in the past or in other mediums. If you believe your writing talent is enough that somebody should pay you just to do that, then you probably believe that your sort of vision and concept of what the story should be is is pretty valuable and has some weight and inherent value on its own, right? And once you become joined at the hip and a partner with somebody else, that will never be the case. It will never just be your creative voice on the page. And, you know, different people give different weight, you know, to the, the two sides of that. And some come down on one side and some come down on the other side. Size take is no matter what, if you're working in movies or TV, you're going to have to give up, you know, pieces of your creative vision anyway. You have to be just as collaborative with the actors and the director and the producers and the editors and the cameraman and the prop department, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess there's some legitimacy to that. But I think that's a little bit different from giving up the the singular, you know, control of what you're putting on the page before you send it out into the world and sharing that with somebody else. You know, we just the two of us kind of lucked out by having enough regard and respect for each other's talent or creative uh, content that we were able to embrace that. When the two of us team up and write something, I think both of us obviously think it's worth more than if we were writing it separately as opposed to less. Otherwise, we wouldn't, we wouldn't still be doing that. Well, I guess now it's time to hear these two guys nominate five. Now's the time to nominate five. Please nominate five. Yes, nominate five. Or six or nine. Now's the time to nominate five. I'd be amazed if they didn't have six or nine. <laughs> but Whoa. I think it'd be like when we had David Marciano on and he had like a nominate 26 or something or whatever it was. <laughs> He kept going right up until the end music was going. It was Pretty amazing. Much, yeah. Can I okay. nominate the Nominate 5 theme song as one of the greatest theme songs of all time? Oh, yes, yes but you've not heard nothing yet. No. It's going to be when we <laughs> oh, get, man. winning a Grammy a, next year. There's a sequel coming, eh? And oh, there's another done. section after this one. Don't worry. Yeah. So, Steve, 
Uh, what is Nominate 5? Well, Nominate 5 is the part of the show where we invite our guests, if we have one, to nominate five of their favourite things. It's usually very, very specific to a guest. And this week, because uh, our particular guests are so fond of their Chinese martial arts movies, we've invited them to nominate their five favourite Hong Kong action films. Okay. So... I'm I'm not even going to bother with a particular order. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't even want to say it, but that's not exactly right because it's, they're not all martial arts or even action movies, but but uh, they're all Hong Kong movies. So okay, all Hong Kong cool. movies. Okay. Kong. That'll be fine. Who's going to go first? Uh, number five. Go. Yeah. All right. So I'll start. What will I start with? Um. I'll start with one of my favorite movies of all time, which is uh, Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express, which Brilliant. is an incredible movie. It's got two stories. Um, it's got great use of Hong Kong locations. It's got incredible music. It's got an incredible cast. If you ask me what is it about, I would say that's a good question. Um, it's about relationships and personal connections, and being young, and living in a city. And I'm a person who loves hard and fast story and structure. And Chunking Express has virtually no hard and fast story and structure. But it's so brilliantly made and and so incredible to watch. And it also packs a ton of emotion um, into its stories. It's two stories. And it's one of my favorite movies of, of all time. Awesome. Very okay. good recommendation. Cyrus, what have you got for us? Uh, I'm going to say Project A Part 2, which is, uh, you have to pick a Jackie Chan movie, which is a movie Jackie Chan stars in and also directed, a sequel to Project A, which is a period... Canadian a period piece. almost... No, <laughs> the period doesn't even matter. It's like a, it's like a period sailor movie. Jackie Chan plays a sailor in the Royal Hong Kong Navy, yet there's very little sailing involved. It's just hilarious, amazing action. It's got some of the greatest Jackie Chan, I think, action in any of his movies. There's a scene where he's handcuffed to another guy, and they're being chased by... Uh, axe-wielding psychopaths. And if you've ever seen a, uh, two people handcuffed together try to dodge flying axes, it's one of the most insane things you've ever seen in your life and hilarious and great. Uh, Project A Part 2, uh, one of the best Jackie Chan uh, Hong Kong movies. Very good choice. Very good choice. Okay, so we come back to Ethan for number, well, I guess our third. Um, that's going to be another period piece, and I will I will pick uh, Peking Opera Blues, which is a movie that I know both Sai and I love uh, tremendously, which we saw in a theater, and God, man, it's so good. It's a it's a story about set in set in China while the European powers have most of the power in China and the Chinese nationalists and the students are are trying to right some wrongs both from foreigners and from the sort of dysfunctional and oppressive uh, Qing dynasty government and 
it's an incredible girl power story from, I mean, the movie was made in 19, I think 1986 in Hong Kong by, by Zhu Hark, who's an incredibly, incredibly talented uh, director. And it's really a story of these three very different uh, young women from different backgrounds in China who team up to, to save the day. And, and again, it's got great music. It's got a very sincere, uh, dramatic story, but it's also got great humor. And then it's just got like incredible sort of like ironic twists on, on what your expectations are coming in. Um, and it's got uh, Lin Xingxia, also known as uh, Bridget Lind, who's just like one of the greatest uh, actresses um, from any part of China who ever lived. Okay. That's great. I've not actually seen this one. I'm going to have to hunt this one down myself. Right. So now we're on to number two in our countdown, which isn't a countdown. So, Cyrus, what have you got for us? Uh, I'm going to go with probably probably the best known Hong Kong movie, The Killer, directed by John Woo, starring Chow Yun Fat. Um, it, it, it's a cliche to say how influential and great this movie is, but it's all, as Ethan says, all cliches are somewhat based in profound truth. This movie has some of the most amazing gun battles in the history of cinema. Uh, it's sort of batshit crazy and operatic at the same time. Uh, it's about an assassin and a cop that go up against each other and ultimately have to team up to to kill hundreds of bad guys in a church uh it's again great <laughs> music am, amazing action i mean this was the movie that sort of established john woo and i would say probably was the breakout hong kong movie that got people sort of interested in this stuff and again it's not martial arts. It's really the origin of what has now been known to be called gu- gun fu as opposed to yeah. kung fu because there's a lot of physical fighting interwoven with gunplay, which had never been done before, really. And it's just a, a ridiculously phenomenal movie anchored by the amazing movie star charisma of Chow Yun-Fat, who plays the killer, not the cop. Which is funny because I always think in the American version, the big star would play the cop probably. But in the Hong Kong version, of course, he plays the cool killer. Uh, Yeah, John Woo's The Killer, classic, great movie. Yeah, I have this here on DVD in the original Cantonese and bad Cockney dub. (laughs) As all of our movies were released. So yeah. Do what? You shoot my brother. Yeah, um, it's an amazing movie. It was one of the films that I discovered Chai Yun Fat as well when it got released on VHS over here. I'm sorry, all I can picture right now is Danny Dyer being brought in to do a dub. Oh, <laughs> you, you should hear the English dub of Hard Boiled. It is hilarious. <laughs> but do they have British accents? Is there like a literally yeah. a UK version with British accents? That's hilarious. Yeah, I, I, I will have to send you... Uh, so I'll send you a DVD version of uh, Hard Boiled that's dubbed into English by English actors. That's and hilarious. It's hilarious. <laughs> you can't even take it as a serious movie. It's that bad. Huh. Okay, so I guess we're at the uh, the top pick now, the last one. So Yeah. 
What do we have, Ethan? Uh, we have On the Run, which on the run. Is, is an incredible movie. I know I keep saying that. That Sai and I saw in a movie theater in Chinatown, and it really blew our minds. Uh, a very grim, gritty story of, about a, a cop who's divorced and his, his wife is assassinated by a female assassin and he ends up in a buddy movie with the female assassin who was hired to kill his, his ex-wife going on the run from the people who hired her who are corrupt cops inside Hong Kong with his young grade school age daughter. And the three of them become kind of a family and the worst possible things that could happen that you would not believe commercial filmmakers would actually deliver on happen. And it's just a gut wrenching emotional, uh, roller coaster that's actually really believable and seems like it could really be happening on the streets and alleyways of Hong Kong. And uh it's just an incredible movie that um that showed me inside that we could cross certain lines and and do things that we didn't think before we saw it we could get away with, you know, in, in our own uh screenwriting and storytelling. And the female lead is played by this uh, incredible actress named Pat Ha. And the guy, the, the cop, is, is oddly is played by a kung fu star who does like no kung fu in the movie. Because the movie is very gritty and much more like a French Connection type of tone than what you might expect from a Hong Kong you know, uh, action movie. The only thing close to kung fu he does is one insane stunt when he has to jump off a roof and and grab onto a lamppost on the street and slide down the lamppost in order to escape the killers who are chasing after him and it sounds it sounds over the top and it's almost like bordering on impossible but it's it's he really did it and it you know yeah, it's it's believable when it happens because he did it in real life. Well, actually, it's funny, Ethan. Even that is subverted because he actually falls off the lamppost and lands hard on the roof of a car. So even yeah. his big stunt is sort of like dirtied up and grittied up. Undercut, yeah. Undercut in this sort of – and made sort of rougher and more violent. Yerm Biao was actually a classmate of Jackie Chan's and came up with Jackie Chan in, like, uh, Kung Fu school and everything. And he's actually in a lot of Jackie Chan movies as, like, Jackie Chan's, like, Kung Fu fighting buddy or something. But this is an incredibly dark, incredibly gritty movie. It's directed by a guy named Alfred Chung, who I think was primarily a screenwriter in Hong Kong. This is the only crime movie he directed and it's really obscure. Again, it's called On the Run, sort of a generic title for a really – Ethan, I would say this movie is almost more like a William Freak. If William Freak – Absolutely. Like, I was I was going to say – I was going to say William, William Freak. William or, yeah. or maybe I Michael said French Mann, Connection, right? Yeah. Right. Or maybe Michael Mann directed a Hong Kong movie. Yeah, That's exactly. That's what this movie wow. is like. 
Yeah. Uh, so look, and also look a it great, up, dig it out. Also a great soundtrack. Great, a great sort great of um, quiet but um, impactful. Uh, you know, low key. I shouldn't say quiet. Low key, but very impactful soundtrack. Yeah. One last thing I'll I'll say about more the experience is uh, what's sort of funny about this. Sometimes uh, you'll go to see a you, like we'd always used to go see these double bills. Like the Hong Kong movies would play in Chinatown. And they would play two movies. And it's sort of – and I've had this experience at rep houses like, oh, I'm going to go see Double Indemnity, which I've never seen, and that's a famous movie. And what's the second movie? Oh, it's this other Billy Wilder movie uh, called Ace in the Hole. And you go see Double Indemnity, and it's great, and you stay for the second movie, Ace in the Hole, and you've never heard of it, and it blows you away, and it's even better than Double Indemnity. Yeah. Well, this is sort of what happened with On the Run. It was like a, a like on the it was the second feature to like a Jackie Chan movie or something. Yeah. So of course we all went to see the Jackie Chan movie and oh let's stay and see this other weird movie On the Run and it just blew us away and it was like amazing. And uh so always remember that because it was like that sort of hidden second movie that you don't think is going to be any good, you've never heard of and then it turns out to be like holy crap, that's incredible, you know. So a fun discovery. So that's our top five or our big five or what is it um, called? Five. Nom- the nominate five. Card. Nominate yeah. five. That's great. it. No, that's, that's a great selection. Uh, I want to go and check those two movies out myself uh, to add to my ever-growing collection if it comes to it. And it's awesome uh, that you already have three of them, though. Oh, yeah, well, I've just been a huge fan of it ever since God, the 80s, since you know the Jackie Chan movies were released. Even like some of the most obscure ones, Chinese Ghost Story, 2000 AD, yeah, uh, great, Iron great. Monkey, pretty much everything. I collect all of the Hong Kong Legends uh, DVD collection, which awesome. I have to upgrade to Blu-ray, but you miss a lot of the actual features that are on the DVDs. Well, we've got one section of the show left, but before we get into that, just want to ask you guys, okay, uh, do you have anything coming out, anything to promote? Anything uh, people should be looking out for that's coming out shortly? Yeah, what are you working on? Well, you know, what we're working on is always like stuff. It's sort of, okay, so I'm going to, there's that's two questions. What we're working on now is like stuff that's not announced yet or there's no point to talk about it because it's not really, it's nothing you can run out and see. But I will plug two things. We have two shows on Netflix right now that we worked on. We have, ironically, Ethan and I did a show for Netflix in India called Bard of Blood, which is a, uh, uh, a thriller, a suspense thriller about a, uh, an Indian Shakespeare professor who's a former CIA, or not CIA, but a former spy who's brought back into the field to uh, get involved in this international case. And it's actually an, a show, it's like a, an Indian show. But Ethan and I went to India and basically helped exec produce this show for Netflix, and it's it's in dual it's in, in English and uh, Hindi, so you can watch it, and it's actually a pretty cool suspense thriller. And then Ethan, the other show we worked on is Nightfall, which um, with a K, which is a Knights Templar medieval show. Uh, Ethan and I. I, I would say this. There's two seasons, two series on Netflix right now. The first season is meh, not that great. The second season was the season Ethan and I were involved in, uh, and it actually features 
believe it or not, Mark Hamill uh, playing a crazy sort of medieval drill instructor for these Knights Templar. And uh, if you want to see Mark Hamill actually curse on film for the first time, he drops the f bomb. Says a few. He's he's like this tough as nails, medieval. Uh, like I guess I guess it's sort of a version of a of a, of a badass Jedi knight in uh, medieval times, and uh, it's a yeah. lot of fun. Uh, and and he uh, does have a he does have his version of a scratchy British accent also. So yes, exactly. Mark Hamill does his scratchy then, British accent. I'll admit. <laughs> I'll mention one project that isn't out and and uh, streamable or viewable, watchable yet, but to keep your eye out for potentially in the near future, which is a project called the Astronaut Instruction Manual, which is sort of inspired by a young adult book, which is pretty cool if you have young kids or, or if you have... If you have uh, elementary through uh, middle school age kids, or maybe even high school kids, about what what you have to do to prepare and train and be ready to uh, be an astronaut in space, or or even potentially like work in uh, here on Earth in the in the space industry, um, which which is a pretty interesting, cool project we're, we've done. But it's not not. Uh, completed yet or out or anything but to look yeah. for in the future potentially well you'll definitely let us know and when it's due to come out and release we will obviously give it a nice promotion for you guys totally that'd be great thanks and uh oh my god steve it is not time for what's in the box what's in the box what's in the box What's in the box? What's in the box? Oh, yes. What's in the the box? What the hell is in the box, Steve? (laughs) That's a good question. Steve. The head of a spinal tap drummer? I don't know. I don't (laughs) rightly know. No, I don't know. What's in the box, Steve? Sorry, I was very, very close to doing a Del Preston impression there, but I know that Ralph Brown would kill me. Um, yes. uh, what's in the box is the part of the show where Andy tries to just basically tear me away from my Xbox and get me down in front of some actually half-decent films for once. He's got a box full of, well, movie titles, and he's going to put his hand into the box and pull one out. Now, if I have seen it, he's going to keep on pulling out different titles until we find one that I haven't seen, and then I'm going to go away and watch it the day be. <laughs> Sorry, I was just throwing bad laughter. I'm going to watch it the day before we record our next show. Just wow. as we do every week. Every week. Uh, right, are you ready, Steve? Lots of people like this, which is strange considering Lots. how... Yeah how unfair i was to uh, 2001 but carry on okay yes you were very unkind to 2001 okay oh, let's man. have a look here uh first one out um oh you've got a uh, disney pixar's ratatouille yes you have seen it i oh, have okay. seen it yeah that one's gone wait are you gonna give us your thumbnail review no no he's we we're waiting for something he hasn't seen yes i know but i just thumbs up or thumbs down on ratatouille it, it, oh. it, it's kind of like a thumb in the middle Really? Okay. It's <laughs> okay. not my favorite Pixar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this might be the greatest day of my life. Steve. 
Yes. Paul Feige's Ghostbusters is funny. No, you f- <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, to explain here, he has refused to watch this movie forever. No! Right? And I said it was in the box and you were going to get it one day and I finally pulled it out of the box. There you go, You Steve. absolutely... You have, <laughs> you have to watch it now. I have been He's... avoiding this movie since it came out. I really have. And now you have to go and watch it. These are the uh, rules of what's in the box, apparently, Steve. You've yeah. got to watch it. He's the biggest Ghostbusters fan on the planet of the original Ghostbusters. And, yeah, uh, good for good for him. I'm, I'm with him. That's cool. Yeah. But now you have to go and watch the uh, Melissa McCarthy, uh, Kristen Wiig version that you have. Can I not yes. just watch Afterlife again? No, because I might pull The Last Jedi out after it, so... Oh, oh, rough, don't. Ooh, rough, ooh. Rough. Yeah, take take Ghostbusters while you can. The rules are you have to watch no matter what comes out of that box. Blame yourself for the fact that you've already seen Ratatouille. You could have got away with it. So, <laughs> so there you go. Is so, it yes. too late to claim amnesia and no. go back? At, oh, Jesus. No, okay. You know what? I, I'm so looking forward to that episode because I know you are going to be spitting fire at that review of that movie <laughs> anyway um while he goes and sulks in the corner i just want to say an absolutely huge thank you to cyrus forrest and ethan reef uh for coming on to our show the these past however many weeks <laughs> <laughs> it has been an absolute pleasure everyone. and i know there was so much more we needed to talk about but it it's good that we can actually hopefully get you back on again to cover other things, especially stuff like uh, the adventures of the Galaxy Rangers for Cyrus. And for Ethan, obviously, we want to talk about uh, your four into the Lawnmower Man, the best adaptation of the Lawnmower Man away from the Brett Leonard movie. <laughs> <laughs> as well as uh, other projects that we've kind of skirted around and missed out on this talk. Uh, but we just want to say a huge thank you. It has been an yes. absolute pleasure having thank you, you on. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been. Oh, hey, you're very fun. welcome. Thank you. Thanks yeah, for thanks having to you us. guys for uh, inviting us on. Yeah. Thank you for joining us here on our on our meager little British podcast. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yes, where where most of our audience are all American. This is true, actually. Yeah, <laughs> American people in the industry. So uh, Ridley That's Scott's going to give us a call next week saying, "Excuse me." <laughs> uh, excuse me. Yeah. 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 No, me and Peter, no, I don't, me and I, Peter I, Horton are sat here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. Those bastards yeah, are taking you shut down the podcast while yeah. it's happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? A god of cinema. I was going to say, this is the worst Ridley Scott impression ever, but it's still yeah, making me laugh. <laughs> I don't understand. Nobody. It has no connection. Oh, it's like East Enders. Really, yeah. Scott isn't uh, from there. I thought it's a Blade Runner. Yeah. That's <laughs> 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 like, oh man. Oh man. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's like, like, it's like, oh, it's like, 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 it's <laughs> oh no uh, oh my goodness uh, gracious <laughs> classic well, well that is actually it for our show uh for this week 
thank you all for joining us. Uh, we will be back next week. We don't have any idea who the guest is going to be because we've got about 10 lined up who are just trying to actually get their availability. So you'll find out when we do. Yes. But in the meantime, guys, look after yourself. I hope to talk to you again very shortly. Yes. So from me, it is a goodbye. From Andy, it is a goodbye. And from our guests, it is a goodbye. And for you, goodbye. Ethan sent uh, uh, top five Hong Kong directors, but the problem okay. is there's no, only good. there there's only like five, four or five. <laughs> there's, there's five. No, there's a you, lot you more. Listed, than that, you but... listed four and two alternates, so there's really only. Well, five no, I six. listed four plus one. You know, choice that I thought was we would both agree about. All right, then how uh, about how about your top five favorite Hong Kong films? Ooh, ooh. interesting. Oh, that's interesting because you that's guys have said that a... that's had a big influence on you. So yes. yeah, yes. yeah, that's a great one actually because I we haven't talked about that in years here's what we should do we should we're, we're gonna agree on most of them but we should just alternate and then we can yeah. pick one then no, why don't but we do, or no, no, let's do this wait yeah no listen ethan you do your no seriously listen we'll alternate and when we get to the fifth one then you and i have to pick one that we'll agree on how about yeah, that okay i mean that i think we'll like... agree on I think we'll agree on no, no, we'll a agree lot on them, all obviously. of them or all of them but i'm just saying let's do it that way <laughs> Okay. Hold All on. Right. Hold let's, on one second. You get, okay. Give me, so give me one second because uh, I got to check. There's one that I always. Forget. Okay. So while you quickly write them down, and uh, as soon as you've got them, we'll do an introduction. Yes. Well, we need we need to do the uh, the intro, the segue into nominate five as well. With music. With music. Very exciting. Because I can't just bring the music in. With music. All right. You're warning us that it's going to come. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I don't think you've even... heard the music. I'm begging you not to leave. <laughs> what is the music? I'm curious. Okay. Okay. Have you got your uh, your ones written down? Written down? Oh, we got to write Or if you down. know them off the top of your head, that's even better. Well, wait. No, listen. Let's give us like 30 seconds. So, Ethan... Uh, yeah, what, you, what, you pick. Oh, two. see, but isn't this? Oh, this isn't. Th yeah, we don't want this on uh, live. No, we don't want pick, them to see pick... it into the sausage factory. Okay. Um, uh, hold on. And Ethan loves hot dog, which is a form of sausage. Yeah. Works. yeah. <laughs> we okay, could just Ethan. release this segment, and it'd be brilliant. There you no, go. we can't. Well, really. you, are you guys recording? No. You can record. You can no. put anything out. No. Oh no, you should be recording yeah. this. God, there's so okay, many Ethan. Uh, Ethan, but wait a minute. Okay, obviously, let's just say we can all actually agree. We there's the killer, God. right? That's got to be in the five. Yeah, I would put Better Tomorrow above the killer, actually. But yes. <laughs> uh, what about Fallen Angels? Angels. Wong yeah, Kar yeah, absolutely. But also Chunking Express. But can we put more than one Wong Kar Wai movie on? I well, guess. Well, we but could. if we're gonna do five, have... and what about On the Run, which is the no? Most but I would put. One. I think I would. <laughs> you would put Fallen Angels above Chunking Express. Yes, to me, yes. What well, let's we say done? that. Let's table that for a second. So we're both going to put <laughs> what, on... What have we done? <laughs> uh, 
Don't yeah. worry, guys. We're we'll both going to put on. We'll both put on uh, better tomorrow and the killer, right? Well, we could agree on that. The, the one that we could do is yeah. Well, actually, we now that I feel like we're making this list, we should just both better. Tomorrow. Yeah, we would agree uh, on all of them. So the killer, fallen angels, better tomorrow. Uh, what about uh, uh, Jackie Chan? We got to put a Jackie Chan on, don't we? Yeah, I, don't uh, we Project A, like, Pro- Project A, Project A, Project A, nope. or Project A Part Two. I know, but isn't that a little? Shouldn't we? Shouldn't it be Project A? Well, no, Rather Project than... A Type Two. Project A Part Two has your like innocent victims of his cruelty bit. Oh, yeah, that's like one line. But yeah, all right, fine. Project A Part Two. But I don't know about not putting Chunking Express. I, I don't know if I can. I love Fallen Angels, but Chunking Express is that's like you know one of the greatest movies ever made in my mind. What well, about a Choi Choi Hark? What about like well, I don't know. Peaking, no, I would say Peking Peking Opera, Opera Blues. Blues. Yeah, yeah, Peking Opera Blues. All right. Well, this is for our five. Hang on. So, so that's right now Peking we have... Opera Blues, A Better Tomorrow. Chunking Express or Fallen Angels to be determined later. The Killer and Project A Part Two. So that just leaves. Or wait, we what about On the Run? Oh shit! Yeah, nobody knows what that movie is though. <laughs> but that's what's a. I'm getting a beer. Favorite. No, no, wait, wait, wait. We're there. Well, you know what? We can put. Don't we I have put... to put On the Run? It, we could take off between Better Tomorrow and The Killer. I would go for. One of us should choose between Better Tomorrow and The Killer, and the other can choose between Chunking Express and Fallen Angels. How about that? So why don't you get The Killer, and I'll get Chunking Express. Uh, well, I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. Better Tomorrow or The Killer? Jesus. I mean, The Killer has more pound for pound. The Killer is probably better. But Better I, Tomorrow I, was I like don't, the first Hong Kong movie we ever saw. Yeah, but well, all right, all right, all right. I mean, okay. all right. So then we're gonna go with the killer and chunking express. Uh, that's rough. Yeah, I don't, that's fine. You I'll can't get everything it. your way. Yeah. All right, and then we're gonna put on the run instead of better tomorrow, right? Right. Is so peaking opera blues, chunking express, on the run, and project A part two. That's five. Uh, okay. Well, no, right. that's four, and the killer. The killer. No. Oh, oh, wait, right, 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 right. And the killer. On the run. <laughs> Peaky uh, for blues. But all right. And the so killer. We're, okay. We'll just, guys, because I know you guys got to go to bed. We'll just riff this at, in no particular order. And Ethan White, we'll just uh, we'll just go between each other. You know what I mean? Okay. You start. Right. Okay. Do it that way. Okay, right. In that case. And then, hey, Cy, when, when we're done doing two each, we should say the third one simultaneously. Why don't we do it that way? Uh. Okay, that sounds confusing, but whatever. That's it's not. Fine. Why is it confusing? It might be a challenge because we have to count like one, two, three, or something. But uh, I don't think it's confusing okay. at all. We'll try it. This this might lie, lie madness this way, but let's see. Let's try it. Yeah, let's go, baby. Fire up that music, Steve. <laughs>